This is a Defocus Media production. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the 2020 podcast, Canada's number one optometry podcast. I am your host, Dr. Harbir Sayan, and a very big Happy New Year. Welcome to the year 2023. This is our very first episode of the new year. And I'm very excited for multiple reasons for this to be the first podcast of 2023. If you've been listening to the podcast, you will know that last year I did a series of interviews, which were called the Future of Canadian Optometry. And I did six interviews with six different guests to explore where the profession is heading in Canada. And Through those interviews, I had conversations with many colleagues. I got lots of amazing feedback. And I learned that there were certain aspects of our profession that we missed, that we didn't really cover. And I didn't want a big portion of our colleagues to be left kind of in the shadows and to not be discussed. There are opportunities that they could have to grow and for the profession to grow. And the perfect person for this conversation, in fact, the person who really brought most of this to my attention is this man right here, Dr. Richard Maharaj, no stranger to the 2020 podcast. Welcome back, Dr. Maharaj. I'm so happy to have you here. Hey, Harbir, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the three-peat, as they call it, and really excited that you asked me to come back. I think this is going to be a great conversation. It really is. And I jumped into introducing you without really giving you a true intro, even though you've been on the podcast a few times. I think it's really important to give everybody a little bit of context as to why you're the right person for this conversation. So previously, we've had CEOs of these large groups or vice presidents or presidents of these different groups. And we even had Dr. Kerry Salzberg to give the private practice owner perspective. But you have a really unique perspective in this independent specialist is the term that I love that you've coined here that we really want to explore today. And just so everybody knows who you are, you are the director of interventional dry eye services at the Prism Eye Institute, which is a leading medical and surgical eye care and research institute with multiple locations in the Southern Ontario area. You are the chief education officer at mydryeye.ca and the co-founder of the Dry Eye Summit, which has very quickly become one of the most recognizable names in dry eye education and innovation here, not just in Canada, but across North America. So as I mentioned, the perfect person for this conversation. So really blessed to have you and your insight here. But why don't we share how this came about? So like I said, I released those six interviews. You were kind enough to listen to all of them and even more generous to give me your honest feedback on them. And you shared that although you felt that there was certain light shed on conversations that needed to be, there was a good portion of our population, our colleagues that were not really represented in those discussions. So I'd love to just hand it over to you and tell me what you think about that. Yeah, no, thank you. I'm fortunate enough to have both live and digital relationships with a lot of colleagues from across the country, young and old and from all walks. And one of the points that came back to me quite often was from some of the younger colleagues that kind of described themselves as, look, I'm not a practice owner. I'm not part of a corporate entity. I'm sort of just a person, an optometrist. And again, those optoms that have been in contact with me generally are interested in dry eye, obviously, and how to integrate it into their practice or how to do it standalone. And so what I found from the conversations, what I was hearing from other colleagues was that the perspective of either the corporate owner or the private practice owner was adequately explored, and then some. The independent specialist or the independent associate whose voice is actually probably, well, certainly outnumber the voices of practice owners is sort of vacant. And where does the future of optometry exist if not with the individual. And if those voices are saying something, but not part of a larger group, then that message gets left out. And so what I was hearing, and again, I'll put my bias out there front and center. I don't think it's any secret, but I've been behind the movement towards specialization of optometry in Canada for the last decade, certainly. And so the one thing that I think became a common theme in most of these conversations was the conversation around the comprehensive eye exam. And how do we utilize that? How do we optimize that? What's the value of it? And how does that impact eye care, eye care consumption, and the market in general? And so I would submit that looking at the comprehensive eye exam is a sliver that is hyper-focused, I think. And I don't just think, I've lived it. And my involvement now with the Prism Eye Institute And the movement towards 
specialized optometry clinics within the PRISM Eye Institute and our groups, which are growing nationally, suggest that there's a market all in and of itself that exists outside the comprehensive eye exam and outside the traditional sort of retail optometry space. So that's kind of where I think we can frame tonight's conversation and see where it takes us. Love it. That sounds good to me. And I have to admit, I agree that that is a lot of what happened there, whether it kind of being by my own, kind of having my own blinders on or just the way that the conversations went with the different guests. But being a business owner myself, being a practice owner, of course, I was coming from that perspective and definitely guilty of not sharing or at least addressing in some degree that the vast majority of our colleagues who are not business owners, as you said, their associates are practicing some other form. So definitely, I hope we can address some of it here. And also, as I've said in previous episodes, or as I've been kind of sharing these episodes, I really want to make sure that this conversation about the future of Canadian optometry doesn't just get buried with those six interviews I did last year. I want this act to be an ongoing thing. And I plan to have multiple more interviews with different guests to make sure that we continue to see the different aspects of our profession and hopefully bring to light some of the potentially negative things that might be happening, but more importantly, the positive things. Because I will say when people ask me, give me a quick summary of those six interviews, I'll say generally speaking, everybody I brought on says that they think that the future is bright and that our profession has a lot of good things going for it. So I hope that we can see that and come together. And the other message I share with everybody is it's going to be super important for us all to work together to make sure our profession stays strong. As you said, majority of our profession are practicing and as not as business owners. So we need to make sure that the masses are hearing the message and working kind of towards some sort of a greater goals, working to get pulling in the same direction to some degree. Why don't we do this? I'll ask you some of this so we can keep some structure to the conversation because otherwise we'll just obviously banter back and forth. I'm sure that will still be valuable, but still some structure to the conversation. I'm going to ask you a couple of the same questions that I asked the other guests. I'd love for you to just kind of put your own spin on it, your perspective on it. So the first question I ask everybody is, in your opinion, what is the current state of optometry in Canada today? Yeah. So the way I see it, I think we're currently in a state of transition. And one could argue that we're always in a state of transition. It just depends on how close to the lens you want to be. So I think that if we're zoomed in super close And that tends to happen when we're highly stressed, highly anxious, highly worried Mm. for whatever reason, competitive reasons or otherwise. I think if we zoom in right now, we will see that our traditional competitive landscape is right in our backyard. And that's with the entrance of new players like Specsavers, and I'll call them out by name, Specsavers, and also the existing other corporate entities like FYI and the other folks that were generous to share their perspectives on your podcast in the backyard of this competitive landscape of what I would describe as sort of retail products, as well as the eye exam itself. But if we zoom out, and if you take that perspective, I think it was Darian, Dr. Angle that had brought this up, and I completely agree. If you zoom out, you're going to see that optometry is thriving. If you compare where we have come from and where we are right now, we are legislatively and from a regulatory perspective, at the pinnacle of where we've been, at least in Canada, we're not yet at the space in which our, some of our surgical colleagues in the U.S. are, but we are approaching that. So from a regulatory legislative perspective, we're probably the most advanced that we've been. From a market share perspective, we're also occupying the largest market share that we've ever had as a profession. And there was a time where we fought to be recognized as a profession. So zooming out, you're going to see that we are actually at a precipice of a very exciting time. And so I would agree with every other of your guests that this is an exciting time, but it does depend on where you are in your career, how seasoned you are, or how new you are. That can be kind of burdened with fear for various reasons. If you're a new grad, you're thinking about where I'm going to work. If you're a soon-to-be retired optometrist, you're thinking, how am I going to reap the rewards of this nest egg that I've built up over the years? Or how am I going to transition? So I think it does depend, but I think it's super, super important that we kind of zoom out and remember that this is and will always be the most exciting time in optometry. The day that you ask that question Hmm. will always be the most exciting time. Well, I hope that's the truth. I hope that's the case, that our profession continues to grow and our scope continues to broaden or expand. So every time you ask a question, however many years down the road, it will be potentially the most exciting moment in the profession and that there is no downhill trend at some point due to various forces, whatever they might be. But I think that's a really good piece of advice there is for us to zoom out. It's tough to do sometimes. when You know what, Harvey, maybe if I can just chime in, and maybe I can clarify, exciting doesn't always mean great. Exciting means that we are in the midst of change. And change, as you've noted, 
and we've all experienced in the last couple of years is uncomfortable. And so it just depends on where you are. We're very much a cyclical profession. If you look at any emerging profession, there are cycles. We are very much in one of those cycles. And so the discomfort is part of that change. And so in the time, it may not seem exciting from a happy perspective, but when I say exciting, I guess I mean, it's like, okay, you're about to get on stage to do that talk. You got those goosebumps. You got those bubbles in your stomach. It's that kind of excitement where it's like a nervous excitement. And that's kind of how I frame that. Gotcha. Fair enough. So what do you see as some of the potentially disruptive forces? Disruption doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing either. Sometimes that word tends to have a negative connotation, but what are some of the driving forces that are changing the profession? You mentioned we're in a somewhat of a transition phase here right now, whether it's specific players like spec savers, whether it's potentially legislative changes on the horizon or expansion of scope and medical opportunities. Like what are you kind of seeing happening? What are some of the few key forces in there? Yeah, I think this topic was interesting. So, I mean, the independent specialist in optometry, that is, really has the potential to be a true disruptors. And this is not necessarily a practice owner, corporate or private or otherwise. I think a lot of the conversations talk about specialty eye care services as an adjunct or as additional Mm -hmm. to the primary eye care or the comprehensive eye exam services. But I'd offer that that's perhaps a bit of a limited view, given the demanding aging population that we're seeing, the increase in various chronic diseases and our ability to treat those diseases. And more importantly, our appetite, especially from newer grads that are being trained at such a heightened level. I think that appetite to engage in specialty eye care services from our perspective is there. I think the demand is there. And so I think it's important to recognize that, yeah, okay, we do have to continue to market to the end user who is our patient that we are comprehensive in nature. We will provide you with a general physical examination of the visual system and ocular health. However, that is not in exclusion or in isolation of other specialty services. And where I see the difference from previous colleagues that you had on the podcast is that I think the over-reliance of the comprehensive eye exam has kind of resulted in it becoming a commodity. And whether anybody wants to acknowledge it or not, the commoditization of anything doesn't generally yield a solid outcome or a positive outcome for the provider of that commodity. And so when we talk about the eye exam, we have to have the latest technology, we have to make sure we have imaging and OCT and all these other things. You think about it, what we're actually doing is We are inflating the value, and some of the colleagues talked about the perception of value, and I think we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. We perceive the value to be greater by including these other things in it. But to me, that seems to be backwards, because if you look at our four years of training, and then if you did a residency afterwards for one or two years, of those six years, the majority of that time is spent learning how to diagnose and treat disease. Not to say that dispensing eyewear and treating visual conditions is not part of it, but we spent a lot of time treating disease. If we look at the percentage of time we spent learning and the percentage of our revenue earning based off of that same ratio, it's actually inverse. Hmm. And so if we're going to expand the comprehensive eye exam to include this, we also need to acknowledge why it's being positioned that way by some of the leaders that we had previously. And again, I would submit that we're creating a momentum towards making the eye exam a loss leader. And look, again, another bias aside, I practice in Ontario, so I can certainly attest to the devalue of the eye exam because of OHIP's remuneration being below the cost of delivery. But we just can't keep on doing that. And so that's where I see the disruption being necessary to invest and not just invest, but put into commonplace language in optometry that the independent specialist or independent specialization in optometry is not just a possible path forward, it's a necessary path forward. To digress a little bit, something you said in there reminded me, you know how you flipped it, you said we spent all this time learning the medical, but really that ends up being a small portion of what we do. It reminded me of something I heard on almost, I think maybe even my very first day of optometry school is definitely the first week. So 15, 16 years ago now to date myself. And one of our professors stood up at the beginning of the lecture and he gave a ratio 90% and 10%. And he said 90% of what you do is going to be basically refraction and 10% is going to be medical. I was just wondering what you would say to somebody if you're sitting today, if you happen to be just like in that lecture, kind of, what do they call it? Reviewing it or whatever. 
auditing it. I wonder, would you stand up and say something to that professor? And what would you say? I would tell him, I hope that's how it goes. <laughs> no, but I think I agree in that proportion of learning. And yeah. I'm still baffled to this day that that proportion isn't reflected in our earnings. And so again, just kind of spelling out a little bit about my history, as you know, I kind of started from scratch a referral-based practice in Ontario, which relied almost primarily for a time on referrals from colleagues from both ophthalmology and optometry. And it was unheard of at the time, but focused specifically on the ocular service, treating medical disease, a particular medical disease nonetheless. And so I put my money where my mouth is. And I said, look, I'm going to rely on the training that I've had. And I did a fellowship, so I invested further time. So I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. I'm going to invest in relying on that acumen, on that expertise, on that specialized knowledge to generate the very revenue and value that I can bring to the profession and my patients. And so I think, and reflecting back on things that I heard back from colleagues was that either one, I'm crazy, or two, it's never going to fly. It won't work in Ontario. Or three, I actually kind of got slapped on the wrist by some colleagues. And I Mm -hmm. thought, wow, how backwards do we have it? And so I guess what I'd say to the professor that you mentioned, it's that we need more people saying just that. We need more voices saying that we were trained for this. In fact, we're being trained at an even higher level than both you and I were. I'm 20 years out now. We are being trained at a much higher level, more focused on diagnosis and treatment. And while legislatively, provincially, at least I can speak to that, we still have some catch-up to do on the billing side. We better invest in showing our patients what it is that we're best at, and then more importantly, valuing that. That word value is the tricky word that came up a lot. So as open and transparent with each other, of course, and everybody else who's listening here, we don't need to beat around the bush here. One of the big elephant in the room here was spec savers. And a lot of colleagues were worried that their presence was going to devalue the eye exam. And as you said, we've been putting a hyper focus on the eye exam, but that's what we've been trained to do. That's what we do as an eye doctor. We do eye exams, comprehensive eye exams. And we've been in the collective kind of voice seems to be that we're worried that our bread and butter, the cornerstone of what we do day in, day out is going to be devalued. And therefore, patients are not going to look at what we do with as much respect as they previously may have. Do you think that's true? And also, like, I know we just see you said it, like in sort of almost in response to that, we're trying to inflate the value of the eye exam, add in the OCT, add in the Optimap, add in this thing. Now we'll kind of add value to it. But what other ways can we add value to what the patient sees in what we do then? The one thing that I would say is stop trying to add value to it. I think the value needs to be explicitly there. What I see that we're doing is we're kind of leaning into optometry psychology of being less than or perceived as less than. I've talked about the psychology of optometrists for such a long time and done a lot of research in this. Our pervasive personality type is an ISFJ, which has us being sort of anti-competitive or at least competitive shy. And so instead, what we do is we try to inflate. We figure out ways to do that. And as a profession, I can say that we have done that. And this is one clear example where we inflate. But the way that I see doing it, and again, this perhaps might come from my close proximity to ophthalmology now, especially with my work with PRISM, which is they're a group, and ophthalmology is a group that can basically hang up their shingles and boom, open up, and they have a wait list right out the gate. And with that comes a certain bravado and a certain, mm. I think, tempered arrogance and sometimes more arrogance and something like that. But there's this sort of, BDE, the not BDE, big doctor energy. <laughs> yeah. have to put that for the PG group. That comes with that. And there's no apologies, of course, because they're not in a position where their patients have to perceive the exact value that they're paying. They get a remunerated service. The way I see it is, no, let's not inflate the eye exam because we're deflating the service by doing that. Let's provide the eye exam and provide services that are needed and necessary for the population. So it's no surprise to anyone. There's demographic prevalence studies at the increasing aging population. We know that AMD is going up, glaucoma is going up, dry is going up, myopia is going up. We know low vision is going way up in numbers. We know all these areas, especially contact lenses, all these areas are expanding and the need for that is expanding. Do we need to leverage the eye exam to get the patient there. No, we need to market. I'm going to speak very plainly. We need to market the fact that this is what we do. 
we provide these various subspecialty services. And not just that, we recognize it internally. Imagine this to the public, and I'm sure you get this too, Harbier. Doing dry eye as long as I have, I have patients that say, look, I went to another dry specialist, I went to this dry specialist, and they use the vernacular specialist, but we can't. In Ontario, we can't. I believe in BC, you still can't. That, to me, boggles my mind because I don't believe that it protects the public, that they don't know the difference between a specialist and a generalist in our profession. I don't think it serves them well because they can go to anybody that says they're providing dry services and think they're a specialist. And I would imagine the same could be said about low vision and other other subspecialties. So I think what we've done is we've forced ourselves, we've painted ourselves into a corner. And so, look, I've decided to take a step out of that corner and step on the paint. And I'm leaving some footprints, but I'm hoping some people follow me because that's the path forward. And that also gets us out of chasing a fixed market share. The only way that we're going to increase capture for glasses and contact lenses, the only few ways are by forcing need, so telling them they need multiple pairs, or decreasing the time between their eyewear purchases. So I think it's, what, 2.7 years between eyewear purchases. If we can decrease that, I think that's Specsavers model, to decrease that to once a year. And the way we do that is by decreasing prices, maybe. That's one method. But unless we increase pairs sold per visit, or we decrease the space between purchases, we're chasing a fixed market. So I don't know about you, but I'd rather be a true disruptor and define a new market. Yeah, I like that. We're going to hold on to that for just a second. So let's make sure we get to that disruptor thing. And again, I want to reiterate why you're the right person to talk about that in just a second. But you're saying fixed market. Interesting thing was when I was speaking with Rick Gad, who's the president of Essler Canada, obviously his business is selling lenses. And he felt that there was still a lot of opportunity to penetrate different parts of the market and it wasn't saturated. It wasn't this that the number of people who wear glasses, maybe that's somewhat, let's say we reach some sort of threshold there, but it was that there's so many different types of lenses that we could be offering these people. We've been offering them just basic single vision this whole time. Maybe we need to offer them task-specific lenses and anti-fatigues and this and this and this and the second pair, like you said, potentially. So in that regard, there seems like there's still quite a bit of opportunity. But I do think it's not the same as what you're saying. But like, we do have to change our perspective still. Otherwise, it seems like that Einstein line, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over expecting a different result. Right now, we've been just doing the same thing over and over. And then getting upset that like, somehow the business is not growing or somebody's taking away the market share. But if you start to do some of the in the refractive an optical ophthalmic sense offering higher end or more unique or more specific type of options to patients, all of a sudden you can grow your offering and then hopefully increase your revenue and that kind of thing. So there still sounds like there's a lot of opportunity for us just in that more traditional sense too. I don't know if you have any comments on that. I don't believe that the glasses, contact lens market, the eyewear market is saturated necessarily. I think any system has a peak efficiency. I don't think we're ever going to get to 100% efficiency. That's impossible. But let's say we can get to 60% efficiency, which we're still not there. How do we get there? And what do we give up of ourselves as clinicians to get there? And look, I'm going to say things that are perhaps a little unpopular, but... I would expect nothing less from you. (laughs) Blue light and the protection of our eyes from blue light and blue light filtered glasses. Look, the science is pretty clear to me that there's a lot of fear in a lot of the marketing that's out there right now for that. We're creating a market. Let's call it what it is. And our patients see it and hear it. And if that's the mechanism to drive towards that 60% efficiency of a system, that's not a mechanism that I want to partake in. And again, just kind of calling it out, we are a part of that system, but we're a cog in a wheel, Mm. a much bigger wheel. And Mm. I can't, with any certainty whatsoever, rely on my colleagues or blame my colleagues for spinning that wheel. Because for some of us, they've looked at the science and they've heard the marketing and that makes sense to them and that's what they're going to carry through. But we also have to be cognizant of the why. We talk about, Simon Sinek talks about what's your why? What's the why of your practice? If we're driven towards the commoditization of an eye exam, then you shouldn't be surprised that we're going to start to commoditize various components of our practice. I think we need to really separate that out and tease that out because I think the market is already straying that way. I think the entrance of Specsavers reveals that. Okay. 
I still were going to do the disruption thing, but I just, there's a question in my head. I feel like it's somewhat relevant to what you're talking. Commoditization is a topic that's definitely come up through these conversations. The idea that these eye exams, our services are being commoditized. The commoditization is the answer to the commoditization for us to raise the prices and say, now my services are, let's say I just for ease of numbers, I used to charge $100, I'm going to charge $150 or even $200 now. So you have this perception of my service not being a commodity. It is somehow more valuable, at least from the outside, before the person even comes in to get their service. Is that an answer or is that a terrible idea? I don't think it's a terrible idea. I differ slightly on it. I would suggest setting the service price, if you will, from an objective standpoint as possible. Determine what your cost to provide that service is and determine what margin you want to achieve by that. That's your price. The minute that we start to put the expectation of what that price should be on what it should be perceived as valuable at, I think that's when we start to get back to second-guessing ourselves. Hmm. We're traditionally undervaluing ourselves. And if we start to play that game, which we already have, that's why we're probably having some of this conversation, I think we undervalue. I think if we could remain objective, take our natural instincts out of the equation, say, look, it cost me this amount of dollars to provide that service. Let's just say you want to have at least 100% margin, double that. And to that end, we should be valuing what that service is and the work that we put into getting it there, the value that has to the patient. Who was it? Was it Rick maybe? I can't remember who it was from maybe Eslor that had an eye exam. They discovered that he had AMD. And what did he say? I can't even put a value to that. So I think looking at it from a different perspective rather than what will everybody pay? That's what we've gotten into. We've gotten into this competitive landscape. But the number on average per 10,000 households of optometrists in the country is still very, very low. There's still way more patients to go around that are not being serviced. I don't know that we need to worry right now about the perception. I think it's us individually, corporate or private, that are creating the optics of this competition. So that disruption conversation, definitely important one. And I want to go back. You already said it yourself, but I meant to kind of mention this already. The reason that you are the right person to have this conversation is not only where you're working now, but how you got there. You started what was called iLab 10 years ago, which back then was, like you said, was kind of unheard of. The fact that somebody would start a specialty practice, not providing your straightforward comprehensive eye exam, but just specifically specialty services, medical services, I would call that brave and definitely a form of disruption, paving your own path. And in fact, lots of people have started to follow that path over the years for sure, and has helped you become this expert and well-known name in the field. This is the reason why I think you're the right person, just to kind of paint that one more time, why I think you're the right person for this conversation. But you talked about the disruption then, stepping in the paint, just start, basically play an entirely different game What does that look like? And I'll speak personally, that would scare me. I imagine there's lots of others that would be afraid of doing that. We, it's a lot easier to follow the already paved path and the model that's already there, which I feel like even I'm doing for the most part day in, day out. How does one going down in a completely different route and how do you have the confidence to do that? How do you convince yourself that you're not making a complete mistake? What's up guys? I just wanted to take a minute to give our exclusive partner, for the 2020 podcast, the Future of Optometry series, a shout out here, Aqueous Pharma. Aqueous is a Canadian pharmaceutical company with a simple mission. Scour the globe for the best products and make them accessible to Canadian ECPs. The Evolved Intensive Gel is an artificial tier containing more drops per bottle than any other brand its size. Each drop is 28 microliters, which is the optimal volume for coating the eye without overflow. Its triple action formula contains sodium hyaluronate at the patient preferred concentration of 0.2%, pure glycerol, which helps to support the lipid layer of the tear film, which is excellent for MGD patients, and cross-linked carbamer 980 that binds moisture to the ocular surface and extends the drop's residency time. As important as what's in the drop is what is not in the drop. The Evolve Intensive Gel is preservative and buffer-free avoiding phosphates and citrates, which have been shown to sensitize the human conjunctival and corneal cells. So why do ECPs love partnering with Aqueous? Because they don't sell directly to patients, nor can their products be found in drugstores or at grocers or on Amazon. Patients can only purchase directly from your clinic or your website. 
Recommending ECP exclusive brands helps to support our profession, helps to build your practice, keeps your margins healthy, and keeps patients within your continuum of care. There has never been a better time to evolve your practice. To request your product samples, contact your aqueous rep today by emailing contact at aqueouseyecare.ca. That's A-E-Q-U-U-S-I-Care.ca. And don't forget to put the 2020 podcast in the subject line so they know you heard about them right here. And now back to this episode of the Future of Canadian Optometry series here on the 2020 podcast, Canada's number one optometry podcast presented by Aqueous Pharma. Man, that's a great question. One of the ways, I guess, to do that, and I guess one of the ways that I think you are certainly doing and I'm attempting to do as well is to pay it forward by creating the language. So one of the reasons why I texted you in the first place was because we need to have this concept of specialization in the vernacular. It needs to be part of that conversation because if the younger minds that are exiting optometry school and moreover, the younger minds that are entering or wanting to endeavor to enter Mm. into optometry don't think or hear or know or experience that specialized optometry exists, I guarantee it won't exist. So there's a word in Japanese, I think it's called karoshi. I could be saying this wrong, so forgive me. I think it's karoshi, but it refers to death by overwork or suicide by overwork. That language, that word doesn't exist in the English language. The fact that it exists in the Japanese language can help to articulate how their culture had to deal with work and overwork and this whole other societal problem. If a word doesn't exist, then we aren't compelled to use it or bring it into our culture. So if optometry's culture doesn't reflect the ability to specialize, then we won't continue to build on that. And so on the concept or on the theme of disruption, then, the reason why I think that specialization is truly disruption rather than telemedicine and optometry or online sales, because I still think that that is capturing a traditional market. When I think of disruption optometry is where do we, like you said, step inside the paint or step outside the paint? Basically, how do we create new footprints and step into a different demographic more meaningfully and with confidence? And look, you're right. When I did it, there were still dinosaurs outside my window. <laughs> I was worried about the comet coming to kill us all. But <laughs> it was a time where I just happened to see a version of this when I was doing my residency back many moons ago. And I saw glaucoma care being provided by an optometrist in a practice. And I thought, this doesn't exist in Ontario. And why can't it? And I saw versions of it in ophthalmology because I work so closely with ophthalmology in a lot of my different practices. And so it was because I was able to see it. It was part of my own personal experience that I was able to envision how to create it. It was still a leap of faith. It was still all those things. And I don't expect 100% of optometrists that are graduating to want to specialize. That's not what I'm suggesting. I think the Pareto distribution of 80-20 is likely going to happen. But if we don't have a pathway and if we don't create value behind it, then that number won't grow as quickly as I think it needs to. But I think as it does continue to grow, what happens when the public starts seeing us as specialists in our particular domain within optometry Our patients, the public, becomes better informed as to what we do. All boats will rise. Tides will rise. And the necessity of competing in the same battlefield starts to dissipate. I don't look at any of my colleagues, whether they're next door or whether they're across the country, as competitors. Not in the least. Mm. Let's know who we are. We're working together. So how do we better increase this basket size? Well, we diversify. Such a great answer, because I was looking at it like, obviously, I was kind of asking you a question that I would ask if I had you in a different context, we're having this conversation, a different episode of this podcast, like, oh, give me the goods on what your decision making process was. But that's not the conversation we're having right now. The conversation we're having is of the future of the profession. And you're absolutely right that if we're not talking about it, if we're not using the words, then we're not creating that space, that opportunity for future optometrists to step into. That's what we need to do. And by the way, I Googled that word while you were talking. You were bang on 100% Kiroshi, overwork death or death yeah. by overwork or whatever you said. I never heard that word before. So there are a lot of words like the independent specialist and the idea of having a specific dry eye clinic that does nothing else other than ocular surface disease. 
these things didn't exist before, it doesn't mean they can't exist or shouldn't exist. And these are the ways that we can continue to broaden our horizons and grow the profession. Because otherwise, like you said, we're trying to do the same thing and trying to grow this market share by doing the same thing over and over. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. In fact, it might work, but it'll take longer versus let's just open this whole new door and explore it. So of course, you've done the ocular disease thing. Is there any other aspects of that sort of specialty type of approach that you've seen other ODs doing? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, I can certainly name names, but generally speaking, the specialty contact lens area Especially contact lenses to me is one of the most exciting opportunities because it perfectly aligns our work in refractive care and physical and visual optics to disease. It's a beautiful marriage. Low vision. I don't know if I told you this, but once upon a time, I used to have low vision services. I'd provide a low vision service in another practice. Low vision, there's the appetite for it. Again, doesn't seem to be very high, but the demand for it is increasingly high. It's going to continue to grow, unfortunately. Those are two areas that I see some colleagues that are doing it. Harbir, to be honest with you, when I get messages on IG or email or whatever, when people are reaching out to me, it's very often younger colleagues that are looking to figure out how do I build a dedicated specialized practice, number one. And then number two, is it even possible? Like, am I having pipe dreams? So when I joined PRISM, when we merged our entities and I took over the optometry services there... Part of my mandate was growing out the specialty arms of eye care at PRISM at a national perspective, at a national level. And that's the goal long-term. And so one of the first things that I created internally was a fellowship program to bring on an optometry colleague that wants to either provide specialty dry eye services, and that's going to expand, specialty contact lens services. We're going to have sort of an intro program, which will eventually will expand and get accredited potentially, who knows. Long story short, though, again, trying to expand and diversify our offerings so that the public sees it. So it's not just the language, like I said, of our younger colleagues, but it's also the language that our public is using with Mm -hmm. us. It's adding that into the vernacular. Yeah, very important. Again, if we're talking about the perception the public has of our profession, of course, we need to make sure they're hearing these words and seeing that we offer these services. Going back to the specialty contact lens thing, for years, I didn't do a residency. And for years, when students would ask me, did you do a residency? If you went back, would you? And I said, I would always say no, because I just wanted to come back and start my business. But over the years, that's changed. And I've changed it to if I did a residency it would be in specialty contact lens, because I see that too. I think there's a massive value in that. So if there happen to be any students out there listening, that would be my take on doing a residency. I think, yeah, 100%. I actually almost gotten to a point where I regret not doing it because I really want to implement so many things into our practice. I just don't have the experience with it. So anybody out there who's got specialty contact lens experience and wants to work with me, <laughs> do a little self-promotion here while I'm at it. I think we've already kind of answered this to some degree, but it doesn't hurt to just kind of ask it kind of outright. The question I asked all the other guests was, what is your definition of private practice versus corporate practice optometry? And a lot of these guests I had on, of course, were a part of certain entities. So I would ask, where does FYI fall on this spectrum? Where does Iris and so on? But of course, I know you don't like that necessarily. In fact, a few people said that they don't necessarily like that binary sort of distinction. But I always took it for when they would give me the answer, I always took it because they were mostly falling into the corporate bucket and they didn't want to be labeled as that. But I know you have a different take on it. So tell me what you think about the whole private versus corporate and how we should really look at it. Yeah, I think the sentiment at a surface level in general is that private is generally equated with freedom to operate, whereas corporate is equated to being hyper-controlled or having a hierarchical structure to it. I don't think that's necessarily a true reflection. I think that both private and corporate are on points on a spectrum between freedom and control. I think the difference really, and again, I always get sort of philosophical, and I know you appreciate this, so I think we can talk about it. You know I love it. Yeah. Yeah, is the degree of consciousness that these different modes of practice may exhibit. And so whereas in a private practice, you may have a little bit more looseness to the structure of patient intake, patient marketing, point of purchase marketing, in exam processes, exit handoffs, that whole process in a private practice may be very, very different and a little bit more loosey-goosey and certainly more variable across different practices. Whereas in a corporate environment, it's fairly structured. It's a little bit more refined. In some cases, it's very refined. And what I mean by consciousness I mean, how aware are you as a doctor working in each of these environments of the degree of influence those practice modes exert on both you and your patients? And again, I would say that as you become more refined in 
the marketing of the practice and again, the processes of the practice. Darian, Dr. Angle at Iris talked about the intake process and how you never have to repeat your complaint. So it's never heard again. And so you're sorry that as a patient, you feel heard. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. But that is architected. That is structured. And however you want to see it, both good or bad, it subtracts from your quote unquote freedom to operate. I think the notion of autonomy somehow sets in mm-hmm. and any of the corporate folks will say, you have your autonomy. They always say, you have your autonomy to practice the way you want to practice. I don't know that that's necessarily true because again, going back to the concept of language, what's the language of the practice? What's being mandated? What is the expectation of the corporate owner or the corporate practice owner versus the private practice owner? Those things all exhibit influence. We are Mm -hmm. a product of the environment of our inputs and our outputs will reflect that input. So I think the difference is in the degree of freedom that you have by virtue of your own consciousness of what's being surrounded. So it's a long answer, but that's really how I see it. I think it's a fundamental degree of separation between consciousness. Obviously, you know, I like the whole philosophical side of things that you bring in always, but I'll take a moment to, I didn't do this in the previous conversations because I didn't want to color it with my personal experiences, but I'm open to discuss with people and I'm sure openly that we have two different modes of practice. I'm sitting in, in the sublease practice next door to LensCrafters now, other practices, private practice, independent practice. So in the exam room, I would say 95% of what I do, if not more, is the same as what I do in the other practice. We have the same technology. We have the same kind of setup in the exam room. The difference comes like, I know that this patient should be going next door here. And I know what lenses they carry next door. And so if I'm going to make a recommendation, I'm going to make one that's going to probably be, I like to recommend specific lenses to patients. I'll put the name of the lens down on the prescription that I think is specific or beneficial for this patient. So what does it make sense for me to write the specific name of a different manufacturer that they don't carry So, of course, that does. While I could say I'm doing exactly the same thing I would do in the other office, well, not exactly because I have that in my stream of consciousness, if I'm using that phrase correctly, that those are the lenses that they offer. And so I'm going to write that on the prescription for the patient. So definitely it does impact the way I practice a little bit. And of course, the handoff situation is entirely different here. So while that's all true, this is my independent practice next door to the lens crafters. And of course, anybody from lens crafters would say, well, you're an independent doctor, you practice however you want. And it is true to some extent, but there's always going to be that influence, like you said, on some of the decisions that I make. Whereas in the other office, when I walk out the door, pretty much every frame that's on the board and every lens that we sell is a decision that myself and my business partner have made for it to be there. That's the autonomy and the decision making that goes into it. So it is tricky. I deliberately ask it like a binary thing. I know it's not. I know there's a lot of overlap, but it's just to kind of get people talking and to share their thoughts. I don't know if you have any comments. I I think you're in a perfect position to speak to both of those experiences. And I guess the question you can ask yourself about how independent you are is, is there something that you can't do? Not you specifically, Javier, but anybody that's listening, is there something in your practice that you can't do? And whether you're in private practice with an independent owner or whether you're in a corporate setting, that answer probably for everybody is yes. There is probably something that you can't do, not because it's illegal mm-hmm. or because you can lose your license, but because the practice doesn't facilitate it, allow it, discourage right. it, etc. If the answer to that is yes, there's something that I cannot do, then you have to acknowledge that there's a degree of control over what you're doing. There's a degree of influence. And to paint corporate with an automatic brush, I think is a bit short-sighted and a bit narrow. And so take that for what it is. It's not to say that corporate is better or private is better, but we are all kind of being influenced to a degree. Absolutely. So I think that's perfect way of putting it. So when you're looking at, because then where I want to take the conversation now, of course, I'll let you share. If you feel like we've missed anything, just share it. But wanted to kind of start to lean towards new grads and students who are coming into the, in the industry now. If they're trying to make their decisions of where should I go practice, it's hard when you have no experience other than in school. But looking at that spectrum, there will be different modes of practice along that spectrum from highly controlled, very little autonomy, even though they'll say you can practice however you want within the confines of what we have set up. Are there things within that setup that you can't do that you wish you could do? Is that the way you want to continue to practice moving forward? And on the other side, potentially almost entirely complete freedom, or at least freedom in the sense of, if I had a young grad come in and say, Harbir, I really want to do low vision. Cool. Let's figure out how we could bring it in. Right now, today, you want to do low vision? I can't help you. But 
you want to do low vision moving forward, let's plan how we can do it. So there's a spectrum, there's extremes to that. And I think deciding what type of practice you want to be in is a big, big thing that grads, new grads and young ODs, I mean, even seasoned ODs want it, they should be thinking about when they're making the decision of where to work. And in that light of making decisions of where to work, the question that I asked a lot of the guests, or I think all of them, is that there's a lot of these incentives being put out there, bonuses, high salaries, forgivable loans. Do you think when a young grad comes out and they see FYI saying, we'll give you 50 grand to pay off your student loans, I don't know exactly how the process works, I apologize, but the term is forgivable loan. I imagine you don't have to pay the money back other than you got to work there. Do you see that as like leverage for the student or do you see that as potentially or the new grad or do you see that as potentially clouding their judgment and their decision making? Not to pick on FYI, but anybody who's offering those incentives. Yeah, I mean, plain and simple, I see it as bait. I don't think it's true leverage. I think it's the optics of leverage. I know that what does a new grad come out with in terms of concerns or worries? Their stresses are their loans and where am I going to work to pay off those loans? Very few ODs reach out to me saying, I'm not worried about paying my debt. You could frame it however you want to frame it, but it's clear what the motivation is to the recipient of that. So with that in mind, it's leverage. And so is that a bad thing? I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. If they have the ability to offer that and make a business model that makes sense, sure, economies of scale will allow it. My opinion is that I've always treated any newcoming student doctor that wants to join our team on a meritocracy. I developed a fellowship program. You need to do three months of fellowship before you get officially kind of indoctrinated into our specialty team. That's it. And part of that is you will obviously receive pay for that fellowship Mm -hmm. at a particular rate, but there's no free pass. I'm not looking for 100% of people. I want the people that want it. And I'd like those that are in it for the right reasons. And so that's, I've kind of taken the opposite approach. I'm not handing it out. In fact, I have a list that we keep of people that want to join. Hmm. That list is ever growing. And so as I put this out there, I'm realizing that I should probably dial this back right now. <laughs> but look at that. In the same country, in the same market space, mm-hmm. we have colleagues that are willing to do whatever it takes to become a specialist. And then on the other side of that spectrum, we have here's 50K and I'll pay your debt. Again, not saying that that's not right or it's disingenuous, but my optics, the way I see it, and I don't know if I'm reading this right, you might see it the same way, and I won't call you out on that, but it seems to be plain as day to me. I don't know that there's any way to see it differently. Yeah, no, I see it the same way. That's why I try to phrase, as we were talking about before going live, but our recording here, but you know, I try to ask the questions in a way that didn't come off as biased. I mean, sometimes I can't help it, but I try to ask them a little more in a neutral fashion just to kind of get a genuine answer from the guests and potentially even tease out an answer that they might not give otherwise. But I feel that way. I do feel like when you come out of school, you're likely going to be a little naive, not everybody. I will say that even when I started practicing, yeah, I feel like I was taken advantage of to some degree by being offered things and kind of promised things up front. And for a little while, it was true. And then shortly after, I realized, oh, this is not going to pan out the way it was laid out to me when I came out as a new grad. And I managed to kind of step out of that situation. But I feel like there's a potential for a lot of new grads to end up in situations where they're being promised something and perhaps either not being told the full truth or they're not asking the right questions to uncover the full truth, whatever it might be. And I think it's very important for these younger ODs to make sure they're asking and asking repetitively or aggressively or whatever to make sure they know exactly what kind of situation they're getting into and not locked into something that they're going to be unhappy with. And also kind of sharing my personal opinion that Jumping, I get it. You got to pay your debt and that's fine. And if that is the most important thing you got to do, then you do it. But if there's sort of like, okay, I could still pay the debt if I go here, I might get less money, but I might get more experience. If that's it, then in my case, that more better experience and better culture and environment that wins every single day of the week. I took less money for sure to be in that kind of environment. And I still think that's the right way to go. And that's what we're trying to cultivate here. Not that I don't pay my ODs well, but I try my best to make sure when they come to work that they're happy to be here first. And then they're happy that they're getting paid after that. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I understand the frame of mind that a new grad is in and new doctors are in, but I don't particularly care for that. Obviously, I could go on about that. I really appreciate that you touched on this earlier when you were talking about using the language that will allow current optometry students and prospective optometry students, more importantly, to see that there are these other opportunities within the profession and maybe help them choose their path. 
let's go to that prospective optometry student, maybe an undergrad student who's looking at potential career choices. What advice would you have for that person if they are thinking about going into optometry? Harbir, you touch on such an important thing. Before I go to the advice that I would give them, I would even go so far as to kind of talk about the selection of those lucky folks, smart individuals that are getting into optometry schools in Canada, the selection criteria, the manner by which we attract interest to our profession, that is crucial. And I don't know that we've given any attention really to that. How are we attracting optometry students? How are they being introduced to the idea of optometry? Generally, it's through their community optometrist, perhaps at a younger age. Maybe it's their parents that want them to be in a healthcare profession. How's UW and Montreal? How are they attracting and then selecting that intake? Because that is very much our future. And you can see universities are migrating to the student populations are changing and people are coming in from everywhere across the country to Waterloo and to Montreal. But I think we really need to think about how we're marketing the profession to the public. I think it ultimately comes down to that. To your point about what do I say to that prospective student, what I would say is how much do you want it? And more importantly, what do you want to do with it? Because ultimately, if you think you have what it takes to get in, then you'll probably get in, maybe. But how are you going to pay it forward? So I would say that my experience with the students over the last 10 years has definitely changed from... I want to graduate and I want to get into practice right away. That was where it started versus now I want to graduate. I'm thinking about residency in one of various areas. I'll probably go to the States to do this, this, and this. And then maybe I'll come back to Canada. Maybe I won't, but I want to practice with specialty contact lenses or whatever subspecialties they choose. I hear that more and more. And so are we listening as a profession to the younger folks that are coming out the gate And if we're listening, what are we doing about it? How are we investing in it? It is wonderful to have investment in the School of Optometry and Montreal as well and their diagnostic labs. It's great. I see their tremendous value in that and I respect that. I think that we need more investment in the public consumption of our profession, not just what we're providing to them at a community level, but how we're marketing it. So let's not just invest in our schools. Let's invest in a national campaign, not just from the CAO. Colgate did more for dentistry than <laughs> dentistry did for dentistry. Like, let's call gonna, it what it is. That's hey. a wonderful, I like that. Because I was just going to ask you, well, who's going to put the money up for that? Well, it sounds like if Colgate did it for dentistry, then who is it? What, yeah, I'm hey, not Colgate needs on. an eye drop out there, maybe. But <laughs> yeah, Colgate needs it. There's eye drops out there. I think I'll you hear what I'm saying. But like, let's not reach outside of the optometry walls. Let's. We have enough corporate in- optometry enterprises let me put that out there. Let's get FYI, Iris, all the big groups, put those dollars together and let's get a national campaign that goes towards marketing our profession to the degree that it needs to be marketed to the end user so they fully understand what we can do, how we can do it, and how fantastic and more importantly, how indispensable we are. That's, I kind of got off the, what we would say to the students. I got back to the industry. What I'd say to the students though is be passionate, number one, be sure that you want to do something with it. And be willing to put in the work because an easy ride will probably be just that easy at the beginning, but it may not end up that way. And given that you assume, as you're saying, the students who have chosen the path to go into optometry are smart and passionate and ambitious and so on, I assume you would tell that prospective student that it's a good decision for them to go into optometry. Is that what you're saying? I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah, no, no, no. You read it right. I still think that it is a fantastic profession. I still think that the future is bright. I don't see dark clouds. That's also part of my personality. Again, I'm all about reflecting bias. So I see opportunity where I can find it. And when there's no opportunity, I create one. So I think that's the mindset that you need to have. It's not going to be for the person that gets dissuaded easily. And that could be said about life as well. So I think you have to be willing to kind of deal with a very rapidly changing landscape. But again, I think that's not really unique to optometry. I think that's Mm -hmm. dentistry, veterinarian, sciences, they've gone through their turmoil. Just look at the human resource market right now, you know, post-COVID. I don't think anybody can escape the fact that everything's going to be changing rapidly. So I guess what do you want to do with it is really the question. But I'd certainly, I am, and I will always be an advocate for our profession. I think that we have a wonderful opportunity to do far more than we're doing right now. And the question is, how fast can we get there? And once we get there, where do we go next? Yep. I would assume that most people who are looking for a profession, I feel like it's my sense anyways, that young people are looking for dynamic professions, somewhere they can grow and try to 
potentially challenge themselves or they have a, a skill. The gig industry or the gig economy is such a big thing. But I find even within optometry, we almost have our own little gig economy. If you have a skill or a talent, if you're artistic or creative or you're good with media or you're a good speaker or you have good somewhat of medical acumen in different ways, there's actually a lot of opportunity to kind of grow in these different aspects of it and still be an optometrist. I think that's kind of a cool thing about the profession for sure. I, of course, I'm speaking for, with my personal experience in mind here. But if somebody's coming in, the one thing I could say, I don't think I'm like you in the sense you kind of make of it what you will, right? If you come in and you don't have that dynamic personality, don't feel like you want to do anything outside of the box, then you might come in and think it's kind of a stale profession and you're just spinning dials like we've done for 100 years. But if you have that type of personality where you want to go out and change things, you might find it actually quite welcoming. And like yourself, I've connected with so many people virtually in person, like you're saying earlier, it's kind of cool to see what so many different people are doing in the profession. And we need to showcase that more for sure to the young people who are thinking about going to optometry. We need them to see that it's not just sitting in a dark room spinning dials. It's so much more than that. I don't know if that, like you said, maybe it's on industry, maybe it's on us individually as optometrists, the CAO somehow. But going back to kind of what I was saying earlier is one of the through lines of all these conversations is we all sort of got to pull in the same direction here. We all got to think about how we are projecting the profession, not just to the public, but to the young potential students in the future too. So before we wrap up, do you feel like we touched on the independent specialist thing enough? Do you feel like there's something else you want to add? Do we miss anything? No, I think we hit it. I feel like I'm a bit of a vehicle for some of the conversations that I had independently. So I think we really covered a lot of the single person messages. Here's the thing. The independent, quote unquote, associate, the non-owner still makes up, occupies the largest percentage of the optometry demographic in Canada and the US as well. We make up, we are that voice. We just don't have a consolidated hierarchy to structure our voice. And it's not to suggest, I mean, yes, we have our provincial associations and our national association, but I think it's so important that if you're a part of a practice right now, you have an owner that listens, use that voice, carry your voice up, make sure you're heard. Mm. I think that's part of it too. There's a bit of disenchantment with our ability to affect change. If you're part of a practice where they listen well, then that's not always the case. Leverage that, use that, speak up, bring in a specialty into your own practice, or at least voice it. Because I think that's the way that this is going to move. At least that's how I've seen it. And a quick, I'll just throw this out there as well. As I talk about specialization, the Canadian College of Specialties in Optometry, the CCSO, we are a group that is kind of moving this agenda forward on a national level. We're still in our infancy and there's still a lot of work to be done. But the CCSO has a fellowship program that is being developed. And that is hopefully going to be the first step forward towards recognize specialization in optometry. And I think that's very close to happening in low vision. And I think ocular surface disease, dry eye disease will be hopefully on its heels, but just amazing putting that out there. That's great work, man. Tell me where can people look that up or how can they connect if they wanted to learn more about that? Yeah. So I think CCSO, it's a bit of, they need to shorten that up, but <laughs> CCSO-CCSO.ca, I believe is the website, but just Google Canadian College of Specialties in Optometry. And I said Google, not OpenAI. Because if you do open AI and you type that in, it'll probably create a whole subspecialty program. I don't know if you've looked up open AI. I have not, no. Oh, it's a whole dude, man. It's a web. You'll get lost in this. Uh, I don't know if I should look that up. don't do that. (laughs) Okay. So search the Canadian College of Specialties in Optometry. Very cool. I want to just kind of echo what you've said a few times now. Yes, I'm a business owner, but when I present these conversations, I actually don't present them. I don't have that just the business owner perspective in mind. Yeah, obviously, a lot of my questions are going to come from that. But I'm always thinking about that associates and the other independent practitioners across the country. I don't know what kind of modality you might be practicing in. But I think it's very, very important for us individually and collectively to know that we have a voice and it's important to share it. Don't think that you have to practice a certain way, or you have to be stuck in a rut or whatever the case And I think more today than any other time, at least in my recollection, the associate has so much power because if somebody came to me and said, if you know, Harbir, I'm going to leave unless you change this about your practice, I would change it like today because it's hard to get good associates. And if you feel like you're a good associate and you're a good doctor and you have something important to say, make sure it's heard. And let's ultimately, as I've been saying, all pull in the same direction to make it so our profession continues to grow if there's anybody out there who's listening and feels like their perspective has not been shared yet, now this being the seventh installment in this series, I'm happy to do more interviews 
to shed more light on our profession and the direction we're heading. So please be sure to get in touch with me at harbiyarsayan.od on Instagram. You can go to the2020podcast.com, info at the2020podcast.com. Wherever you find me, I'm pretty easy to find online. (laughs) I'm sure you know by now. If there's anything you found valuable in this conversation, please be sure to share it, throw it up on Instagram, LinkedIn, wherever, text your friends, share the link with them. Let them know that Dr. Maharaj was on here sharing his amazing insights. I'm excited to share more of this with our colleagues. So thank you for listening. Thanks again, Dr. Maharaj, for being here. Thank you so much, Arbir. I had a wonderful time always chatting with you. And I love what you've done with this whole platform. I have a lot of respect for you for putting it out there in the first place. So fantastic work. And hopefully your listeners can kind of chime in wherever you put this out on IG or et cetera. What's your subspecialty? What do you want to do full time if you could? Put that in the tagline. Let's see what we can drum up. I love it. Thanks, man. Thank you so much. Thanks again for listening, guys. We'll see you in the next episode. 